Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 38 of the podcast, the very first episode in which we'll discuss the third novel in the Chronicles of Narnia titled The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this episode, we'll look at the very opening chapter titled The Picture in the Bedroom. And uh, for my money, this book in the series is uh, one of my favorites. For a while, I would have mentioned that this was my favorite. Uh, That is a terrible question to try to answer, which of the seven books in the Narnia series is your favorite, because it seems like they they all are a favorite at different times, or that uh, there are particular moments in each of them that you would rank right up at the top. Uh, This is, I think, one of the most compelling of the seven. Lewis's balance of a high seas adventure story uh, with King Caspian and Edmund and Lucy and Eustace and Reba Cheap uh, sailing, uh, looking for the seven lost lords of Narnia. It just has all of the trappings of a great and uh, an adventurous fairy tale uh, type story. But it also, of course, is interwoven with many uh, depths and layers of, of meaning, of theology, of uh, practical wisdom, um, references to uh, all, all sorts of other literature and, and other philosophical thoughts that make it a rewarding read for anyone, not just for children. Not just for children. Um, this is Malcolm Geith's favorite uh, in the in the series. Uh, if you ever are uh, of the mind to read Michael Ward's great book *Planet Narnia*, then you'll notice that *The Voyage of the Dawn Treader* is a particularly solar novel. It is shot through with imagery of the sun and of radiance and light. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite lines in the book is at the very end when they are approaching uh, the very edge of the world into Aslan's country right before Reap Cheap sails into it. And uh, they dip their hands into the waters and they drink it. And Lewis says the water tasted like light. And Eric Metaxas once commented that 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 line of its own is just representative of Lewis's brilliance as a writer, as a poet, uh, his ability to craft imagery like that, that just resonates deeply. In the beginning of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he dedicates it, uh, like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the very first novel. It's dedicated to Lucy Barfield, and Lewis has this inscription that he gives where he says one day she might be old enough to read fairy tales again. Uh, This novel is dedicated to uh, her brother, Jeffrey Barfield, who was uh, one of Owen Barfield's children, one of his uh, foster son of Owen Barfield, a very close friend of Lewis's his whole life. And uh, it opens in a similar way to the other two books. In fact, it opens in a similar way to uh, most, if not all of the books in the series, where you have our central characters in some sort of um, difficult or mundane or negative uh, experience. If you remember in the first book, all four of the children are sent into the countryside to evacuate due to the war. And they're sort of cooped up in this home and they are, Mrs. McCready starts moving around the house and they're, they flee into the wardrobe in Prince Caspian. They're on a train station platform waiting to go back to school and they're whisked away because of Caspian's blowing of Susan's horn here, Edmund and uh, Lucy, the younger two are stuck for the summer in their cousin's home, the home of the scrubs 
uh, particularly Eustace Clarence Scrub. Uh, and yet again, in this chapter, they are whisked away to Narnia, much like in Prince Caspian. In the next book, in the silver chair, Eustace and Jill will be at Experiment House, their awful school, and they are the product of, or the uh, target of bullies. Um, and they are, they sort of unite together in this friendship and they find themselves in Narnia. Um, in the magician's nephew, in the magician's nephew, Diggory and Polly are cooped up in the house. I think it's a rainy and sort of dreary summer day. Uh, so Lewis finds a pattern that works where uh, the inauguration of a great adventure often comes right in the throes of a difficult situation. Uh, that often these glorious encounters with the magical uh, and the real and the ultimate occur right in the midst of our humdrum ordinary or even uh, dreary and uh, difficult experiences. And there are many life lessons to be drawn from that. Uh, I want to spend some time at the beginning of this chapter honing in on one of the novel's central characters. And that is the character who's named in the opening sentence, Eustace Clarence Scrub. This novel in the Narniad is, is quite famous for its opening line. It's a beautiful and powerful opening line, though, of course, quite simple. There once was a boy, I'm sorry, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. So just a fascinating introduction to this character. You almost feel as though you know what to expect with that kind of a line. Uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub. Uh, Edmund in this chapter will refer to him as a stinker. Uh, he very much is. Later in the book, uh, famously, he is, he is transformed into a dragon. Um, and of course, he's unable to undragon himself. He has, he has to allow Aslan to intervene and scrape the scales off. But there's a line there, and we'll, we'll uh, discuss it when we get to it. But there's a line where Lewis says that uh, Eustace had been thinking dragonish thoughts already, and therefore he became a dragon. That he already was effectively a dragon at his core, on the inside. And so therefore his dragoning is just a manifestation of what he already had become. He was a dragon on the inside, so his curse, his transformation, is merely an outward expression of an inward reality. And so we see snippets of that already in this chapter, where he is a bit of a rotten boy. Um, but Joseph Pierce uh, comments on this opening line where it says that Eustace almost deserved his name. And to almost deserve something is the same as not to deserve it. Um, there is a way in which Eustace is the product of parenting. He's the product of his education, uh, which we'll look at in just a moment. But Lewis is, um, throughout the whole series, uh, weaving in comments on how children are to be educated, how, how the way one is educated impacts the person that they become. This is probably most obvious in the silver chair where the beginning is uh, Jill and Eustace's experience at, at Experiment House, which is this um, horribly pragmatic and modern schooling uh, experiment um, with all sorts of negative consequences that Lewis saw. We saw this with Prince Caspian as well, where Caspian's tutelage under Dr. Cornelius is of an ancient and medieval kind uh, versus the merely practical and merely um, industrial types of vocational educational training that uh, you see elsewhere, that education is merely for the training of skills for uh, it, their utilitarian uh, value in society. 
rather than um, what we see with Lewis's own views of education as that which is the forming of a soul rather than just mere information. And so let's spend some time on the scrubs here in the opening paragraphs. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on beds, and the windows were always open. Eustace Clarence liked animals, especially beetles, if they were dead and pinned on a card. He liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. So again, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader opens with Eustace. He's going to become a main character of our interest throughout the story. Of course, we're familiar with Edmund and Lucy. We're familiar with Caspian. We're familiar with Reepicheep. And all four of them will get more uh, development of their characters. And of course, Aslan, as he appears. Uh, but Eustace is our new character that Lewis takes pains to open with particular details uh, around his character. And it's these details that invite us to see Eustace a certain way and to see what's wrong with Eustace in Lewis's mind um, a certain way. So let's start at the top. His parents called him Eustace Clarence. Masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. So there is a central defect in Eustace's character that Lewis opens with beyond his name, uh, which there are some things associated with his name that are quite funny. Um, but it's the fact that he had no friends. This is an important character flaw that Lewis is going to um, show in need of reformation, in need of uh, remedy, is Eustace's friendlessness. In The Four Loves, uh, another of Lewis's works, he describes these four different kinds of love that are central to the human experience. And one of them is the love of friends, what he calls philia or brotherly love. Um, this is the kind of love that is between companions, between uh, co-travelers on the road. And for Eustace to have no friends, no partners, is not just um, the result of being shy or the result of being an introvert. This is a serious um, emptiness or serious cavity in, U in Eustace's formation as a human being. People need people. Humans need companions. And for Eustace to have none is an entry point for us into what his character is lacking. Also, Eustace's education. We'll discover in the silver chair that Eustace attends Experiment House uh, with Jill Pohl. Uh, this and which we'll talk about more when we get to the silver chair. But this school is an occasion for Lewis to really bring out a, a sort of Dickensian satire against the industrial uh, educational models that were quite popular at the time, still are in many ways. Uh, that schooling is a place where we, like Thomas Gradgrind at the beginning of Hard Times, uh, Gradgrind is this great 
uh, invention of Dickens is as this quintessential teacher who believes that education is merely about the transferring of facts from the head of the teacher to the heads of the pupils. In the beginning of Hard Times, Dickens describes it as the dumping of data into the buckets of his students' minds. That's what education is, is teach them the facts, nothing else. And all we need is information, uh, period, full stop. And that's what we see with Eustace. The only kinds of books he likes to read are books of information, data, completely divorced from uh, the transcendent, divorced from the metaphysical, divorced from the imagination, uh, things that Lewis prized above all else. Uh, Eustace has only a taste for this utilitarian uh, industrial view of education as pragmatic and useful only. Um, and so as a product of this education, uh, he has dispensed with these um, views of honor, views of respect. He doesn't call his parents father and mother. He calls them by their Christian names, Harold and Alberta. Um, he likes animals, but only if they are labeled and pinned to a card. The only kinds of bugs that he has a fascination for are bugs that are pinned to styrofoam and neatly identified. Um, which reminds us too of, uh, there's a moment in, I believe, Prince Caspian where uh, the Pevensey children discover uh, beasts in Narnia who have lost their ability to talk. They have become dumb beasts. That there's something serious has been lost when all we see of something is its material makeup. Uh, an animal is merely its scientific name. An animal is merely the number of legs that it has, uh, whether it is a mammal or a reptile. That if we reduce the natural world around us to its mere parts, what we've done is we've ripped the ghost out of the machine. Uh, we've taken the heart away and all we have left is the calculated head. Uh, this will put us in mind of something we'll see at the end of this chapter, but uh, a pretty strong reference to Lewis's work, The Abolition of Man, particularly in that book where he talks about a human being a combination of three parts, the head and the belly, the head being the rational part of man and the belly being the sensual and appetitive part, um, the guts. Lewis says what we need are, to, are men with chests. We need men who have heart that is able to bridge the head and the belly. We cannot be all head, where it's just merely logic and merely reason. And we cannot be all belly, where we are animal and governed by appetites. We need to have chests, virtue uh, instilled in us that is able to mediate between the head and the belly. And for Eustace, he has no chest. He has no way of mediating uh, head knowledge of a thing and the belly of a thing, the mere animal instincts. He has no virtue or no formation of the soul to speak of that is able to govern the extremes of the head and the belly. And so he likes animals, but he doesn't like animals the way he ought. He likes them merely as rational objects of study and examination. He likes them in this way of vivisection rather than in this way of uh, communion with, with uh, um, lordship, like what you see in Genesis, where Adam is lord of the beasts, but he also names them and categorizes them and tends them and cares for them. Eustace likes books, but only books with information in it. He doesn't like the books that form. He doesn't like the great books that teach of heroism and courage 
and love and self-sacrifice, these books he doesn't have a taste for. There's another detail we get in the opening paragraph of the Scrubs is that they were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. Uh, this is an interesting polemic from Lewis where he seems to uh, ascribe to these kinds of people negative attributes that they abstain from, um, out, from drinking wine, they are non-smokers, they are vegetarians, uh, these are people who are uh, overly finicky, overly particular, it, to the point of banality or sterility. And in this way, the, the scrubs are a probably more socially acceptable form of similar things we saw in the White Witch and in Miraz. The White Witch, remember when the spring is coming and she sees the animals uh, rejoicing and celebrating, uh, she is the one who puts a stop to it by turning them to stone. She is the, the buzzkill. What's the meaning of all this waste, this gluttony, this self-indulgence? And she turns a right view of revelry and a right view of, of indulging in the things that God has given us, and she turns them to stone. She makes them sterile and plain. Uh, Miraz does the same thing, that he takes these glorious stories of ancient days that Dr. Cornelius tells, and he censors them. He bans them to set up his rather prosaic and um, mundane kingdom. And so here we see a similar sort of uh, criticism from Lewis that the kinds of people who turn their nose up at others who indulge in the pipe and in the pint of beer, uh, you get that, that image of Tolkien's view of the good life as a pint, a pipe, and a song by the fire. Um, the sort of thing you might see in the tavern of uh, of Hobbiton, where you have Mary and Pippin indulging in pipe weed and dancing on the tables. Uh, this is a view of the good life that Lewis has a strong allegiance to, and we've seen it before, the celebrations and the revelries of the Narnians and the meadows and the fields. Uh, but the scrubs have no time for that, that they are very up-to-date and advanced people. They are chronologically snobbish people, that only what is the latest and the trendiest uh, in terms of diet, in terms of fashion, in terms of educational theories, these are the kinds of people we are. We have no need for those, uh, those ancient goods uh, like wine and laughter and song singing and so on. And so Eustace is a product of that as well. And there are many ways in which um, if you wanted to pursue this further, Joseph Pierce has this great book uh, called Further Up and Further In, where he describes the scrubs as this uh, quintessential um, philosophical representation of the ideas of George Bernard Shaw, uh, who was a very famous writer during Lewis's time uh, that Lewis had a great deal of uh, disagreement with. And Shaw what peddled this soft Marxism of his day where he too was a, a vegetarian, a non-smoker, a teetotaler, and so on. Um, but that's, if you were to read that further, it's an interesting insight that Pierce brings up. Eustace Clarence disliked his cousins, the four Pevensies, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. It's interesting, this is the first time in the series we hear their surname, Pevensey. Uh, the movies, the Narnia movies, use the last name quite a lot, but it's not until this moment in the stories that we get their last name, that they are the Pevensies. Uh, and we hear that Eustace was glad that Edmund and Lucy were going to come visit, but not because he had any real affinity 
or friendship with his cousins, but merely because he liked bossing people around. He was quite glad when he heard that Edmund and Lucy were coming to stay, for deep down inside him, he liked bossing and bullying. And though he was a puny little person who couldn't have stood up even to Lucy, let alone Edmund in a fight, he knew that there are dozens of ways to give people a bad time. So again, we get Lewis's view of what makes Eustace such a rotten character. We, we get the sense that he is, uh, especially by the end of this chapter, when he's contrasted with Reepicheep, he's contrasted with Lucy. We see Eustace as uh, the, uh, the irritant. We see him as the one who's the greatest nuisance, the, the annoying one in the room. But the reason is that uh, Eustace harbors this, uh, this sort of Nietzschean view of bossing people around, that uh, the desire to dominate others, rather than having a right love for others and a right view of himself in the great chain of being, uh, Eustace has no humility to speak of. He lords knowledge over others. He lords his way of life as superior, much like his parents do. Uh, that they were up-to-date up and advanced people. And so Eustace's whole view of his place in the cosmos is as a lord. That it is, the, and which is the irony is, is that it's in complete contrast to his stature. He himself has no great chest. He has no great bravery or honor or wisdom. Uh, he is a puny little person who couldn't have stood up even to Lucy, and yet he projects uh, to compensate this desire to dominate, this sort of Napoleonic need uh, to colonize, to lord himself over, and that's what makes him such a rotten figure. Over the next several paragraphs, we find out Lewis gives us some continuity from the previous books, what has happened to Peter, what has happened to Susan. Uh, we discover that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pevensey are visiting America for 16 weeks, that Mr. Pevensey is doing a lecture tour, in America, and Mrs. Pevensey has gone along on vacation. Uh, we discover that Peter has gone to the house of Professor Kirk, who we have already met in the first book. It's his house that they go to, to evacuate from the, the raids on London. And so he's gone back for further tutelage under the professor. And it's interesting here that Peter being tutored by Professor Kirk, there's a great biographical parallel there with Lewis himself being tutored by uh, William Kirkpatrick, the man he called the Great Knock. In Surprised by Joy, Lewis has this great um, account of how he had been taught uh, in this sort of apprenticeship relationship with a man he called the Great Knock, uh, William Kirkpatrick, who taught him logic and how to argue and taught him rhetoric and so on. And it's even more interesting that Professor Kirk, who's tutoring Peter, has a similar name to the Great Knock, William Kirkpatrick. So Peter's being tutored. Uh, Susan has gone along with her mother and father to America. And we get the first uh, foreshadowing of the so-called problem of Susan here. Uh, the problem of Susan is a conversation that uh, usually arises when you read The Last Battle, uh, which we'll discuss when we get to it. But that Susan um, is a figure of great controversy at the end of the Narnia series. Uh, so much so that people have dubbed it the problem of Susan about why she seems not to appear in Narnia, the ultimate end of all things. Um, we'll talk about those things when we get to it. But some of the reasons given then are uh, Susan's interests in 
uh, in dating and in relationships and so on. And here we get a bit of an insight there where Lewis says that Susan had um, been considered the pretty one in the family by grownups. Uh, she wasn't good at her schoolwork. She seems to have a, a difficulty with focus in her academics. Uh, she was very old for her age, Lewis says. Um, and so there might be some way in which Susan's uh, interests and her desires are, are moving away from uh, fairy tale and from Narnia and, and toward um, grown up things. And so she goes with her parents to America, which leaves Edmund and Lucy to go to their cousin's house, the Scrubs house. And so we have this setup here. Um, and Edmund and Lucy love to discuss Narnia in secret since they've been uh, many times before. Um, and then we get this painting. It's the picture in the bedroom, the title of this chapter. And it's interesting that we discover it's a picture of a Narnian ship. And of course, it's the way in which Edmund and Lucy and Eustace will arrive in Narnia. They will go through the painting uh, into the open seas and they will climb aboard the Dawn Treader. But it's interesting that in the Scrubs house, we have this painting of the Dawn Treader. Uh, and it's a painting that Mrs. Scrub doesn't like. That's why it's hanging in this in the spare room, in this neglected room. And yet Lewis tells us it had been a wedding present from someone that Mrs. Scrub didn't wish to offend. So that's why she didn't get rid of it. And how fascinating. <laughs> we never find out who this person was that gifted this painting of the Dawn Treader to the Scrubs or why they thought the Scrubs would appreciate this painting. Um, and so that adds to the mystery of the stories. I think it's just a wonderful detail there. I wonder who this person might have been. Uh, there's one uh, commentator who sort of conjectures that it might have been a painting by Diggory or Polly uh, that they painted the Dawn Treader. Um, oh, that's kind of a far-fetched idea. Uh, or that the frame that holds the painting was made of the same wood that the wardrobe was made of. But keep in mind that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the professor says um, that you will go into Narnia when you least expect it. And there, one route into Narnia might not ever be used again. Uh, any attempt to reduce the magic of going into Narnia into some sort of um, chemical chemistry that makes it work is to, to lose the magic of the thing. So all we know is that there's a ship of the Dawn Treader in the Scrubs house and Eustace and Lucy and Edmund look at it and it becomes real and the sea wind blows on their faces and the water pours out and they fall into Narnia and the story begins as it were. Again, in a similar way in which we saw the beginning of Prince Caspian where they're whisked away from the train platform. And so they fall into the ocean uh, they're sighted by the Dawn Treader. Caspian goes down and, and pulls them up onto the platform. And he sends for uh, one of the sailors, Rhinelf, to go get some spiced wine for them to drink to warm them up, which is also interesting that one of the first things we hear about Eustace is that he's a teetotaler. And yet one of the first experiences he has in Narnia is being given wine to drink for the goodness and the gladness of his heart and to warm him up for the adventure at hand. Uh, so again, this is Lewis giving us a kind of remedy for the prosaic and ordinary life, um, that there is a need to rejoice. There's a need to celebrate. There's a need to dig deep into uh, the goodness of the world rather than just abstain from everything. There's a passage in Colossians where Paul says, why do you abstain um, from certain goods? 
do not eat, do not taste, do not touch. Um, he says this abstaining has the appearance of righteousness, but it does nothing against fleshly indulgence. That um, trying to live life like the scrubs do, where we just um, remove from ourselves anything that might be a good simply because it might be abused or simply because it might be disordered, uh, that's no real response to the world that God has given us. Rather, we must trust him with the things he's given us rightly to enjoy. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Um, and the way in which we enjoy them is to have an ordered affection for them, to have the to have right feelings and right loves for them. Uh, which brings us to the very end of the chapter uh, where uh, Eustace wants to go home. Uh, he's He doesn't have his sea legs. He's not ready for a voyage at sea. Uh, he encounters Caspian, and then he encounters Reepicheep. And he says, I hate mice. What is this hideous thing? Um, which, of course, if you if you remember Reepicheep, he's, he's the exact antithesis of Eustace. Eustace um, is uh, a student of facts, a student of details and data. Reepicheep is um, a valiant and noble mouse. And at the very end of it, um, Eustace says, oh, take it away, wailed Eustace. I hate mice, and I never could bear performing animals. They're silly and vulgar and, and sentimental. And interestingly, in that accusation that Eustace launches, he says they're silly and vulgar and, and sentimental. So the, the final thing he says is that mice are sentimental. That's what makes them uh, so ugly and so horrible. He says they're silly and they're vulgar. Then you have and, dash, and sentimental. So he's reaching for one of the harshest things he could say as a justification for his hatred of them. And he says that they're sentimental. And that's an interesting choice for Eustace because he has no conception of one of Lewis's favorite ideas, which is that of just sentiments that human beings are meant to be sentimental. Now, there is obviously an extreme where you can have an abundance of sentiment, where you are too emotional or too subjective in your assessment of things, that the things that you do and don't do, you do because I, I don't feel like it, or it doesn't make me happy enough, or it's not exciting enough. Or you just have this overabundance of an emotional register where you can't think clearly. That would be an extreme of excess of sentiment, but you can also have an excess in the other direction. Lewis was a student of Aristotle. Um, he, not a direct student, obviously, but Lewis admired very much Lewis, uh, Aristotle's, uh, particularly his view of ethics. And Aristotle's famous for this idea of a golden mean between two extremes, that you can have an excess of, um, a virtue or a deficiency of a virtue where too much courage would be recklessness, right? Where you're just brash running into battle with your hands in the air. Um, or you could have a deficiency of courage, which would be cowardice. And so courage is a virtue because it's the golden mean between cowardice and recklessness. And so uh, Lewis constantly uh, brings this idea up of having rightly ordered sentiments rightly ordered loves, rightly ordered affections, 
as a way of achieving the virtuous life, that we can become most human and participate most fully in our humanity, not by an excess of our feelings and not by a complete denial of our feelings, but rather by a right ordering of our feelings, our sentiments, rightly ordered affections. This is a, it harkens back to Augustine's view of the order of our loves that he talks about in the city of God and that Lewis cites in the abolition of man, uh, which he had written only a few years prior to writing the voyage of the dawn treader. Um, so let's talk about the abolition of man for a moment. Lewis writes the abolition of man, uh, which is a very slim uh, book. It's a, you could read it in one sitting. Uh, very densely philosophical, but very, very uh, insightful into Lewis's um, overall views on many things, particularly his views of man and his views of ethics, of, of good and evil, right and wrong. He writes that in 1943. He writes Dawn Treader in 1949. Uh, and he writes The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in only 90 days, which is fantastic. He just um, flies through the crafting of this one. Um, but you can, you can very much hear some of the same things he writes about in The Abolition of Man emerging um, in the negative from Eustace here, where Eustace does not have a right ordering of his own sentiments. And so therefore he accuses Repacheep, someone who very much has a right view of honor, a right view of valor and courage and self-sacrifice. Um, he accuses Repacheep of being sentimental as though it's a bad thing because Eustace himself has a lack of the right sentiments. The, he, Eustace is impoverished sentimentally. His feelings are not trained. He is a man without a chest, to quote Lewis from The Abolition of Man. Remember, in that book, he describes human beings as a combination of the head, the rational, logical side of man that reasons, and of a belly, the sensual, uh, appetite part of man, and that a true man has a chest that is able to bridge and order the connection between the head and the belly. Eustace has no chest. He has no training in virtue. He has no cultivation of the soul because, again, he didn't read the right books. Uh, he didn't um, see the world around him as a dance in which he is a participant that has a particular role to fill. He sees nature as that which needs to be conquered, that which needs to be dominated, that which needs to be suppressed and bullied. He sees his fellow man, not in terms of uh, companionship, but rather as people to boss and people to subjugate and to uh, put down and ridicule. He sees himself as superior and so he has no means of humility and of um, cooperation with the world around him because he's disordered. He has a disordered soul. And so when he accuses mice of being sentimental, he's revealing the problem in his own heart is that he is not sentimental enough. He doesn't have the sentiments that Repacheep does. And in this book, we're going to track Eustace and Repacheep as these two characters that are polar opposites of each other, and yet they both uh, experience um, probably what uh, Lewis's primary themes of the whole book are. Uh, Devin Brown, in his book, Inside the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, talks about this book being a book about longing and about learning. 
And for Reepicheep, what he's longing for, what he's desiring is to enter into Aslan's kingdom, to enter into Aslan's world at the far edge of the, of the earth and beyond. And so Reepicheep has a right feeling, a right desire, and therefore he acts accordingly. He acts with humility, with self-sacrifice, with courage. Uh, Eustace has to learn those longings. He has to learn how to have the right sentiments. And his becoming a dragon is the central test of his learning those affections. He, he learns in that moment a right view of himself. He learns in that moment a right view of his behavior toward others. He learns in that moment his, the right view of salvation, that he cannot fix himself. The problem of Eustace's affections is a problem of the heart. And Eustace can't fix his own heart. That's where Aslan has to give him a new heart. He has to give him right feelings and right affections for the good and the true and the beautiful in order to make Eustace fully human, in order to form him and not just inform him. And so that concludes our chapter. At the end of this chapter, Lucy is given a, a place in which to change out of her wet clothes. Uh, interestingly, the cabin is described as tiny, but uh, bright with painted panels, all birds and beasts and crimson dragons and vines and spotlessly clean. Um, she wears Caspian's clothes, with her, which are a little bit too big for her, and she walks around barefoot. It's interesting how this image itself summons up some biblical imagery of Eden, uh, is this place that is um, brightly painted with birds and beasts and vines. Um, we get uh, also sort of a sanctuary language of the Hebrew temple where there are painted panels uh, and the painted, the paintings on the panels are very uh, Edenic, recollecting birds and beasts and so on. It's spotlessly clean, that idea of being holy. It's no accident that Lucy is walking around barefoot, which gives us this image of holy ground, if you remember Moses as well. So we see that they have been pulled from the uh, rather ordinary realm of uh, Cambridge, where the scrubs lived, and they're brought into this sacred land. Uh, and as Lucy recognizes, because she's been there before, the chapter ends with the statement that she felt quite sure they were in for a lovely time. And that's what a true invitation into the sacred promises, uh, that it will not be an easy time. It will not be a lazy time or a time of mere indulgence and rest. It will be a time of work. It will be a time of great learning and great longing. Uh, uh, remember, this is a high seas adventure tale. And so there will be conflict, but it is going to be a lovely time. It is going to be a good time. Uh, for Lucy and Edmund and Caspian, of course, as they're reunited with their fellow Narnians, but also for Eustace, that he's going to be our entry point into this story. And uh, interestingly so, he is going to be a human who is going to undergo great transformation of character, and yet he's not a monarch. He's not Narnian royalty. Uh, Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy similarly were drawn into Narnia, and underwent life-changing experiences, and then they were crowned. And then we saw Caspian um, going through a great deal of uh, transformation of character in his novel, and then he has become king. Here, Eustace is one of our first characters, Jill will be the same way, who's summoned into Narnia and undergoes a great deal of, of deep character transformation, and yet is not 
um, anyone particularly important in Narnia. He is not and will not be Narnian royalty, but he has the same duty for bravery and honor as any of the other human characters do. And this is uh, something that Doris Myers calls the ordinary path of wholeness, the ordinary path to wholeness. Uh, this is the path that Eustace must travel. He's a disordered soul. And therefore his time in Narnia is meant to rightly order his soul, rightly order his affections, even though he's not an extraordinary king. Um, he is a son of Adam though. And remember how Aslan tells Prince Caspian that uh, being a human, being a son of Adam is honor enough to exalt the greatest kings and it's a shame enough to lower the head of the beggar. Um, and so Eustace, by virtue of being a son of Adam, he must walk this ordinary path to wholeness that Lucy believes promises to be a lovely time. So thank you for joining us. Uh, stay tuned next time as we look at chapter two of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, titled On Board the Dawn Treader.